Our Old Testament reading today is from Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Our New Testament reading and sermon passage today is from 1 John chapter 2, verses 19 to 27. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Christ Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Good to be with you all and worship with you all yet again. Um, it's also always a special joy to preach. As I always say, it's one of my favorite things I get to do here is to come under the word of God, bring before you what the Spirit uh, is bringing before me and to see what the Spirit might be bringing before you as we often have great conversations following sermons. Uh, I'm Clay, uh, one of the pastors here again. Uh, we're in a series here studying 1 John, uh, this letter. It's five chapters uh, on the shorter side of books of the Bible, and it's a New Testament letter. It's written by the Apostle John. Uh, we looked at walking in the light. We looked at, well, what do we do if we have sin? How we still have uh, a mediator. We looked at this new commandment to love. We looked at the love of the Father. And today we come to abiding in the Son, abiding in Him, is the refrain you may be picked up, even just reading it, uh, how many times it actually says abiding, this word uh, meno in the Greek, meaning to live, to dwell, to remain, to make your home somewhere, kind of 
the semantic overlap of all of those concepts. When you're somewhere so long that you live there, you reside there, you're dwelling there, uh, you have life there, uh, even. And so what it's talking about is it's talking about how we have life in Christ and we remain in him. He remains in us, we remain in him. And the problem it brings up uh, is what about those who don't remain? What about those who profess Christ yesterday but today do not? Those who fall away. You may remember the two uh, purposes uh, that John gives for writing what he writes in the, in the New Testament. He's a conscientious author that way. He actually tells us the reason he's writing things. So in the Gospel of John, for example, he writes, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He does the same thing at the end of this letter. He uh, concludes saying, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So you see the way those are built on each other. The Gospel of John first saying, I write this so that you may believe, and by believing, having life. And then we see, well, now I want you to know that you have life. You who believe, I write to you so that you may know, so that we may know that we have life in Christ. And one of the big stumbling blocks to uh, the assurance of John's audience has been uh, these antichrists. And as soon as I say that word, we're all a little on edge, right? As images of the omen uh, come to your mind, maybe. Hollywood has made, uh, you know, no end of depictions of the Antichrist and this kind of sinister, diabolical figure, uh, as it is often understood. Not without some warrant from the scriptures, but when we, what we're reading here is less about the Antichrist that is only mentioned in passing. What is mentioned is these Antichrists. And so what do we do with this language that kind of makes us a little bit uncomfortable? One idea is this, and some have done this, uh, buy a billboard, right? <laughs> you see where I'm going? Buy a billboard and predict the end of the world and you know who the Antichrist is, right? This, this kind of idea that you've seen out there. Uh, people have thought, uh, right? I have this perfect reading of the understanding of scripture, and so I can know based upon what is said in scripture, setting aside conveniently that it says you will not know the day or the hour, that I know when the end of the world is going to come, and I know who the Antichrist is, and I know all these things. Now, most of us aren't there, uh, but I think what can happen is we sometimes see the people that are there, and we kind of go, that's kind of, they're the like Antichrist people, right? We don't talk about that. That's... So when we come to a passage like this, we're kind of like, uh, I don't know what this means, I'm going to move on. Which I think is a mistake, because what, we're, what we wind up doing is giving bad groups good things, right? This is kind of a mistake we can make in Christianity. We see the way the Roman Catholic Church, for example, elevates his, the history of the Christian Church to a place where it's authoritative over the Bible. And our reaction can be, all that's not important. Basically, nothing good happened between the time of the apostles and the Reformation, or even today, right? That church history is no longer important. Well, that's an overreaction. That's to give, right, the, mis the misuse of something uh, over to a group that's misusing it, rather than to say it's actually good in its proper place. So with this, I think the same kind of lesson can be drawn. There's a real warning here about Antichrist for us, right? We can't give that away. 
We shouldn't run away with it to the point where we think we uh, know things we can't possibly know. But we have to listen to what John is warning us about with these antichrists. And I think what we're going to see is that the reality of the Antichrist is far more terrifying than the depictions of Hollywood, right? If this were simply a diabolical conniving person or a like, conspiratorial group of people out to, out to ruin the church and make life bad for us, that would be one thing. But what we actually find our Antichrists are has-been Christians, they're well-meaning people like you and me who profess the name of the Lord Jesus and now no longer do. And I think if we're really paying attention to this warning, it's going to scare us a lot more than, than you know, the omen might. But as we come to this, we want to, see, we want to take heed of this warning to see past the deception and the phenomenon sort of of the Antichrist and see what God would have us do, how we can abide in him. So before we go further, let's pray together. Our God in heaven, we pray that you would speak truly to us in this moment. We know your word is truth, and we pray you would sanctify us by it. We pray we would know in him in whom we have believed, and we pray even as we see those who have fallen away and the warnings to continue to abide. All these things, the dread of it might come upon us. The fear that our love, our faith in you is not enough. That we, we haven't loved you rightly. We pray we'd see it's all from your grace that we are standing here professing your name today. We, we pray that we would have confidence in him who loves us and hold fast to you forever. We pray in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. If uh, you've ever been part of a musical subculture, uh, there is a, you know, back in the day you had, you know, different categories of youth culture, right? Like the nerds and the jocks and all that. You go around the cafeteria, there's all the groups there. Uh, but there's also you know, these specialty groups. And when I was growing up, in the days of My Chemical Romance, right, we had emos, good old-fashioned emo kids. And of course, for me, you may know that that eventually became heavy metal is what, you know, the sort of subculture I've been a part of. But all these groups, punk, goth, whatever, you know, you want to call it. I'm sure there's a bunch of new names I'm completely oblivious to now at this stage of my life. But there is an idea of the sellout, right? The poser, the, the one who kind of was, you know, living the whatever lifestyle, the goth lifestyle, the you know, punk lifestyle one day, and then suddenly they're not. And so the idea is that they're not, they're proved to be not sincere. Uh, and also, just for the record, since I'm always thrown under the bus for being a metalhead, your own pastor, Jamie McGregor, has a history with hardcore punk music, and I can find pictures of him with a mohawk. So just saying, that's a thing. But in that hardcore movement, there's a group called Straight Edge. And if, I don't know if anybody even knows what that is, but basically this is a group that says, you know, for us it's about the music, it's about the aggression, it's about like hardcore. And so like they basically will not drink, they will not smoke, they abstain, right, from all these kind of other things that get thrown in with the music scene quite often, right? And that's part of their expression of how authentic they are, right? 
but you know, many people in this phenomenon, when I uh, was part of the scene, you know, they're 16 years old and they're like, well, I'm straight edge. Well, really, your mom is just telling you not to do those things, right? Like it's actually, it's not really so much you are the straight edge person, it's just that you don't really have too much of a say and you don't wanna get in trouble, right? So here we are confronted with Antichrist, and these are basically Christian posers, if you want to put it in so crass uh, terminology. And we're like, what do we do with this? How do, we not, how do we know we're genuine? How do we know we're the real ones? That in 10 years, we'll still be naming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's not just for us a fad, right? A couple things about this Antichrist language we notice in the first two verses, 18 and 19, you see uh, three things I'll point out from here. Uh, Antichrist, who they are. By the way, I didn't even give you an overview. We're going to go Antichrist, who they are, what they say, and then how not to be one. Right, so that's, that's where we're going. In these two verses, who they are, we see three things about who they are. Uh, one, they're associated with the last hour, and that there's many of them, and that there has beens. That language of us and not of us, that kind of equivocating language John uses there. First of all, children, it is the last hour. Uh, so whatever we are thinking of the last hour means in the Bible, right? It's at least been here for 2,000 years, right? It's been the last days in Hebrews 1 for a long time. It's here and here it's been the last hour for a long time. What is, what is meant by that? There's kind of an idea of like, well, did they think that Jesus was going to come back any day in the first century? And they kind of, has that been proven wrong? I think the best way to understand it, if you go to Hebrews uh, one, as you actually see, it says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things. In other words, if you think of, this is a theological term, but redemptive history, right, the things God is doing to save his people, from covering Adam to the giving of the law to, uh, you know, the Dead Sea to uh, all the patriarchs, the prophets. If you go through that whole historical timeline, there's no next thing that's going to happen, right? There's no more ultimate thing than Jesus coming, right? The Son of God is here. In the last, you know, you see in Hebrews here, long ago he spoke by prophets. Now he speaks by his Son, that's not going to be one-upped, right? In other words, you might have thought uh, those uh, who are still waiting, uh, imagine like a, a Greek in the days of Jesus, right? you know, before Jesus is known on the scene, and seeing the Jews do have the true religion, right? But they haven't heard the testimony of the Son yet, right? They haven't, Jesus hasn't come and revealed himself for who he is to be. And so there's a, a sense of the scripture saying, well, you know, the ignorance of former days has been overlooked, but now the time has come, right? Like there's no next thing that's going to win people if not this. Or you think the parable of the tenants when the man lets out his vineyard, uh, he sends messengers to it like, hey, you need to get this in order. They don't listen. Then he sends his son, right? Thinking, oh, we'll definitely listen to him. Of course, they are evil and they, they kill him and try to you know, st steal his inheritance for themselves. Well, there's no next thing the guy's gonna do, right? Jesus even asks the Pharisees, even the Pharisees get this one. He's like, you know, are, what do you think he's gonna do? Well, he's gonna go destroy them. They killed his son, they ruined everything. Uh, there's no higher testimony now that's going to win us. 
And so that's what the Bible means by the last days. The last days are the era in which Christ has been revealed. There's no greater revelation coming. And so it's not so much the actual minutes and hours as it is this era in redemptive history. And John just warned us in uh, previous, just the verses leading up to this, the world is passing away in all its desires, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. So we come to this idea of the time is short, right, between us and the last judgment. It's certainly shorter than when it was the days of Moses or Noah before him, right? And so there's no next thing that's going to happen before the final judgment. The world is passing away. This isn't, again, a prediction of it's going to be next week. Of course, we're, we're told always to be ready. But here we are. There's nothing between us and the final judgment. The sun has come. We live in the last hour. And then he says, as you've heard, Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Again, we don't often think of many Antichrists. We're usually thinking of the one uh, mentioned. Really, there's only four mentions of the word Antichrist that occur. Three of them here in 1 John, and then 2 John is the fourth one, often equated to the man of lawlessness you see in 2 Thessalonians, uh, as well, uh, Revelation, the word Antichrist doesn't even appear in Revelation, that might shock you. So, you know, we might ask ourselves, I'm not going to detain us with a question of who all that is, the question before us is who are the Antichrists, right, plural. Who, who is it that John is talking about here? Well, there are many of them, and what he says is that uh, there has been. So in verse 19, he says, they went out from us, let's see if I can find it, but they were not of us, I believe, that's the language he uses. Yes, so I write to you, uh, many antichrists have come, therefore we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. And so again, that judgment is happening, the sifting is happening. We know it's the last hour because people are starting to make up their minds one way or the other about the sun, about this ultimate revelation that has come. The sifting process of time is happening. And then he says, they went out uh, from us, but they were not of us. And that's a little bit of a, a sort of interpretive translation. He actually uses the same word. It says, they went out from us, but they were not from us. They were and they weren't, right? If this were modern English, he might say, you know what I'm saying? You know, like, they were and they weren't from us. What does he mean by that? Well, they're from us in the sense of, again, these are people numbered among the believers in the church here. These are people who were probably baptized. These are people who ate communion, uh, who were part of this gathering of the saints. And then, it's, then he says they were not from us. They were not from us in the sense that now time has shown that they've actually ultimately rejected the testimony of God. They've ultimately rejected the Son. That's again why he calls them anti-Christs, not anti-theon, you could say anti-gods, right? They're not anti-God per se, they're anti-Christ specifically. We'll get into that in a little bit later. But you see that this final, these, uh, those who have once believed who are from us, but not exactly from us. Now, if again, if you remember, and, and keep in context here, that the reason he's writing is so that you may know he wants you who have believed to know you have life. Uh, you see why this is disturbing to the church, right? It's kind of like um, if you think of uh, marriage as a, you could use marriage as an example and say simply, you know, if you get married today, 
there is a, apparently, I don't, I don't know all the statistics, I'm pretty sure it's over 50% chance, right? Just raw, raw numbers uh, that that marriage might end in divorce, right? So does that distress you at all, right? Like, why is my marriage going to be different than the person's next to me, right? It's the same thing here. It, why is my faith walk going to turn out differently than the person next to me? That can be very distressing, which is why he writes, but you have been anointed and you all have knowledge. You see the kind of reassurance he's trying to give them there. There are people who have gone out from you. They were of us, but not of us. But you are different. You see that, how he's trying to reassure them? Have you ever noticed that the, the most formidable enemies of the Christian faith are the ones who partook of it once themselves? A while ago, we had the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse. Do you remember this? The new atheists? It's old now, so it's kind of a misnomer at this point. But, you know, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, these guys, uh, they would come and say, I don't even remember Dawkins' whole long-winded quote, but, you know, God is a megalomaniacal bully, right? He would say, you would say, like, this is just, he's just a terrible guy. This whole Christian thing is silly. It's faith. It's superstition. It's nothing. It's not based on reality, right? All the things he would say, and he caused us, I think, a lot of ire, right? He, he, he made us mad because the things he, were saying, he was saying weren't true, but I think it's kind of because of that that I think we're able to work past him, right? Someone like that in your life. He might make you doubt some things. He might make challenge you on some things you thought you knew. But he's not ultimately, doesn't seem to me, or I don't think many, I don't think he's actually cost people their faith in terms of, I think, it, I think if he cost them their faith, it was going to be something else eventually anyway. Because when you hear someone like that talk, you can't help but think, you are an accomplished person in your own way. You have a British accent. You sound like you know what you're talking about. But you don't about God. Like, you don't actually know what you're talking about, right? Because, like, if you knew the God I knew who would send his own son to die in my place, right? That is not in this evil God you talk about, right? You just don't actually know. I think it's easier for us to dismiss someone there. But now in the church, we have a new movement, uh, a new kind of popular trend that is causing division and disruption, and that is the deconstructionists. So these are people uh, who basically were evangelicals and have basically so questioned their faith, some of them have just walked away entirely, others still profess faith, but it's a kind of faith that is so qualified now that it's unrecognizable. So like someone like John Harris, Dustin Kensrue, Rob Bell, people like this, that, were, that actually we have seen them profess. We have seen them actually taste of the Lord's goodness and then come away and say, actually, no more for me. I think that is so much more uh, terrifying, right? Here's the warning of the Antichrist. Again, don't think conspiratorial group out to, out to get us, right? This conniving, shadowy organization that's going to, you know set traps in front of the church. Antichrist as a phenomenon are those who have self-consciously uh, walked away from the faith, who have heard the fullness of that revelation, who have heard the idea of the Son, have heard that Jesus Christ has come, not only revealed God, but taken away my sins, and then rejected it. They have tasted the heavenly gift and said, I'll pass. 
Now, why that terrifies us is, again, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know the future. Could that be us? They, I was sure about X, Y, or Z. Some of you may actually know a leader, actually know people with a story where they have come to faith through someone who themselves have abandoned the faith. What, what do I do with that? Right? Is my faith built on sand? Apparently, what he was telling me didn't work for him. People have this story. And it's, again, I think that's a lot more terrifying than uh, simply someone who's just angry at religion and calls it all a superstition. So that's who the Antichrists are. They're of us and not of us. What do they say? For that, we look at 22, 23, 22, 23 and 26. Uh, we'll see a few things here. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. I write these things about those who are trying to deceive you. What we learn from this, I think, is three more things. Antichrists are very simply, first, those who deny Christ, right? That's box number one to check. Uh, they claim the Father, which is very interesting. Again, they're not anti-God, they're anti-Christ specifically. And they become deceivers. So they deny the Christ, they deny that Jesus is the Christ, we saw that. These, so again, we've talked about the Gnostics, those who deny the flesh, right? The, the physical world is unimportant, it's all about the spiritual. In 1 John 4, it says, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Christ is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So the spirit of the Antichrist is he who would deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. And so the flesh component seems to be the thing these Gnostic spiritualists are denying, right? They can't think that God, who is spirit and great and above all, right, that he would come down to the flesh, that doesn't make any sense. We're all trying to, in the Greek economy, trying to escape the flesh. We're trying to get past it. How could that be? But I think we actually kind of have the reverse of that in today's world, right? We can believe there was a man named Jesus, supposed to be the Christ, but that he was God? God is preposterous to us, right? Now it's the other way around. But the result is the same, right? We're denying God, the God-man, either because we don't like the flesh component or because we don't like the God component. We're still denying Jesus has come in the flesh, right? It's the same thing. And you can think, again, those who claim the Father, why do I say they claim the Father? Remember verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. So they seem to have some kind of stake in claiming, right? Oh, no, no, I do believe in God. I am pious. I'm not, I'm not an atheist. It'd be very impious to be an atheist in that day. I claim God, it's just the Jesus, the, part, the Jesus part through him, that's not it. Again, today you might find people claim God, they claim, oh no, no, yeah, I think Christianity is a good set of moral rules. It's, you know, Jesus was a good man, he came and taught us many things and like he was on the way to figuring out something really good, but we need to add to that, build upon that, get beyond Jesus. We might claim God, we might claim the truth, we might claim the Father, we might just cl claim a generic idea of goodness, right? We see that today as well. And then finally, deceivers. Again, I write these things who are about those who are trying to deceive you. Uh, they want to take us along on the ride with them, right? And this is a, an interesting thing I've noticed as well. And this is purely anecdotal. Open to be corrected on this, but I'll just put before you that I think most of the people who have deconstructed or have said, you know, 
I've been thinking about this, and actually I'm not sure Jesus was really God, or I've been thinking about this, and the whole atonement thing, I'm not really sure about that anymore, but I'm still a Christian, just not really sure about these uh, doctrines, which we would say I think are essential. They, they want to take us along for the ride, generally speaking. Uh, you know, you think of John Harris, guys like this who, who, you know, they were Christian leaders, they evacuated their faith, and they don't go, oh, actually, I don't have anything more to speak to you about because I'm, right, I don't have anything to do with religion anymore. No, no, quite the opposite. No, now I want you to come this way with me, right? They want you to come with them. And in one sense, this is understandable, right? Because if they think they were living a lie, they now want to help you not live that, what they would call a lie. But the reason, of course, is that they themselves are deceived. We see this in John 2, 11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. So those, these antichrists, these, those who have said, it doesn't matter what you do with your body, you can hate your brother, it's all just about the spirit, forget Jesus. They themselves are in darkness, which is why they're deceived and deceiving. So here's a question for us this morning that makes us, that raises for every single person in this room. Are you deceiving yourself? Could this be you? Could the time, could time sift you, sift your faith, right? We profess Christ today. Could life, the shocks of life, could uh, our own sin, could our own error actually take us away from God? That's what's put, that's the question before us this morning. Again, a, a terrifying notion, a terrifying warning, I think, for all of us. How do we not be an antichrist? How, how can we kind of guarantee that there's never going to be a day which we're not professing Jesus? Or at least not finally, right? Like we, we'll have our ups and downs, but we'll come back to him. How can we know that? How can we, have, how can we do what John is writing to do and say, how can we know that we have eternal life when this is a reality, this is a phenomenon that we see? How do we, again, to the marriage analogy, how do we know it's not going to end in divorce? Look at 20 through 21, and then we'll jump ahead, 24 through 27. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Again, he comes back to the anointing in 27, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Again, abide, abide, abide. What are we seeing here? How do we not be, how do we know if we're not an antichrist, right? How do we know? How do we, how can we make sure we're not an antichrist? Three things, remain in the truth, live the truth, and love the truth. How can we have assurance given the phenomenon of Antichrist? I think what John would say to us is that not being an Antichrist is more about the present than the future. Again, he says abide. And again, it feels like he's like shaking us by the shoulders as he just right, says over and over, abide just as it is taught, abide in him. Again, the, the various meanings of that word abide. 
when it said they were not of us, by the way, it actually was that same word your, your translation might have. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. That continued is actually just another abide in this passage, right? Those who have, are not abiding with us. So now we're commanded, abide. What you have heard from the beginning. Again, this is just as he's been saying, I give you no new commandment, right? I'm not, I'm not adding anything. I'm not from Jesus adding on as these Gnostics have done. I'm writing you no new commandment. Jesus isn't a stepping stone to anything. Yes, we grow and you know, develop in the Christian life. But just dwell there, right? Remain there. Do not be deceived by those who claim that it's not enough. That you've got Jesus, yes, that's nice, but there needs to be some further development. Jesus has come in the flesh for you. And for us and for our salvation, he suffered and died and was buried, right? Remain there. There's no need to add on is his first, I think, sense of the word abide. So he's abide in that truth. Live there, stay there. But then also live the truth. Again, I just read the, the Antichrist are those from a Gnostic point of view, the body doesn't matter. So love doesn't matter. Loving your neighbor doesn't matter. Here he says, live the truth. Again, what's his twofold purpose? He writes, so that you would believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and by believing have life and that you who believe would know and have life, would know you have life. And Jesus, just so happens, in the Gospel of John 10 says, I came that you would have life and life abundantly, right? He's the shepherd. He's saying, live with me. Here's, here's what I think is uh, the question for us. If we, if we want to spend eternity with God, do we want to spend the afternoon with God, <laughs> right? It's not about the future. It's about the present. Will you just live there, dwell there with him? Be with him in prayer, commune with him. Read his scripture, hang on every word. This is the promise, eternal life. Right, if we want, the same with a marriage, if you want happily ever after, right? But we can't stand to be in the same room with each other now, like that's the problem, right? Forget 20 years, start here. Live together. Live with God, live the truth. Thirdly, love the truth. Uh, and this I get from many other places in scripture, but adding to, to what John is saying here. Uh, the late great R.C. Sproul has three questions for Christians who struggle in their idea of, am I really saved? Am I really loved and saved by God? Am I his forever? Will I be one of those who remains? He has three questions about uh, your love, which of course is the great commandment John has been writing and will continue to write about. Have you loved Jesus Christ perfectly? I don't see any hands up, that's a good sign, <laughs> right? Have you loved Jesus Christ perfectly? So we start there. I think the answer is no. Have we loved him enough? Put forward that, right? Well, I feel like we kind of have to say no to this. If we said no to the first one, right? I have, we're supposed to love him with all our strength, all our soul, all our mind. Have we done that? No. 
Here's a third question. Do you love him at all? If you have not loved Jesus, you're in pretty good company. But before you, the life of Peter, the man who denied Jesus three times. Uh, we preached on that when we were looking at Mark. Uh, Jesus told him he, that Satan desired to sift him like wheat. Again, that the passage of time would test his faith and it would come up wanting. But you know what he says? But I have prayed for you. And what does Peter tell Jesus at the end when he comes back and restores him three times asking him, do you love me? You know that I do. Right? Be like Peter. <laughs> if you're in this spiral of looking at your love and saying, but it isn't enough, but it isn't enough. Am I truly his? If I don't love him, what he deserves, which is perfection. I think if you ask Peter, have you loved the Lord Jesus perfectly? I don't think he would say yes, right? I think he would say, I have failed profoundly and my Lord has restored me. And yes, I love him. John, interestingly, uh, in his gospel, refers to himself as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I think that is a very interesting turn of phrase. He's not the disciple who loved Jesus, <laughs> right? He makes no special claim of his own greatness in loving Christ. He rather says, I'm, I'm one whom Jesus loves. Do you love Jesus Christ, the God come in the flesh for you? I conclude this morning simply saying Antichrist may frighten us, right? The omen version, but even more so the idea of being one who looks back at Christianity and says, that was a weird trend I was a part of. That was a weird time when I thought I was connected to God. That, that scares us. We'll let perfect love cast out fear. Three, three bits of advice. Again, you don't need a crystal ball to know you're loved and to know that your God will love you forever. One, wear the ring to keep our wedding analogy going. Uh, baptism, communion, church membership, belong to Christ. Those outward signs, right? Wear the ring to keep, right? You're showing yourself, the world, God, that you belong to him. And then talk and listen. Talk to God, pray, keep an ongoing abiding with him. Confess to him, celebrate things that happen with him. Commune with him daily by prayer. And again, hang on every word he says in the scriptures. Listen to his voice. He says he is the good shepherd. His sheep know his voice. And he came that he would give them abundant life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we tremble at the warnings of your word. Where over and over you tell us, abide in him. Abide in him. We pray that you would will us to live and live forever in you. The promise you made for abiding in you is to enjoy your life forever, to be with an everlasting fellowship, to be with the fellowship of the apostles and saints who've gone before, to always live and know that you are loved in God. Christ, we pray we would abide in you today. Help us to see our need of repentance. Help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And help us to know you will never let us go. Those who are in your hand, you cannot let go. We thank you for your everlasting love. In Christ's name, amen.